0: morning church sorry you're going to have to do better than that morning church morning. all right yes okay all right that's enough <laughs> I should have known uh, turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning um Page 977 in the Pew Bible, if you need that. We are taking a break from the book of Luke, which has been amazing, and we'll continue that here in a few weeks, but we're stepping out into Ephesians uh, for a few weeks with a series we're calling Worthy of the Calling, which is just a great reminder uh, to our church at large. And also looking ahead to those that we'll be sending to Bargersville uh, for our church plant. And um, I want to read the the text from last week, which is the first six verses. And then the connector to our text this week, verse 7. And uh, so follow with me in Ephesians chapter 4. And then we'll get to our text, which is 11 to 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that thought continues in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning, the help of your spirit, to help us understand this text and apply it. I pray that you will make the truth of this clear to us and encourage us and uh, challenge us and change us uh, this morning for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that we defend as Christians and as a church is God's design for marriage. One man with one woman for one lifetime. The reason we defend that is not because of tradition. It's not because of a political view. It's not because we wanna go back to the good old days. The reason we defend God's design in marriage is that we believe that he is our creator and that he has designed us to flourish in this creation that he has given to us. And he has designed marriage, right, to bring two into one under our creator and for Christians under our savior. And when we follow that design, there's a beautiful picture there of unity because as we follow God and, and seek to be more like our Savior, Jesus, the two become closer and closer. And there's a beautiful unity in that that then enables a maturity and growth in that marriage. And it's a beautiful thing to watch God's design play out in marriage. And uh, the reason I, I mentioned that, and, and, and by the way, that assumes that, that that marriage, that home is built on the Word of God, rooted in the Gospel, and focused on Jesus. The reason I mention that is when we come to Ephesians 4, our verses today, I believe we give, we see that God gives us His design uh, for the church. And we see a lot of similarities, so we shouldn't be surprised that, that um, Christ and the church are described as a marriage. God's design for the church is this. The main idea that we're going to see in this text is that God has gifted the church for the purpose of unity in order to bring growth and maturity. And then I'll add this tagline at the bottom to keep us in front of us the entire time this morning. As the church is founded on the word, rooted in the gospel, and focused on Jesus. This is God's design for the church. And so what we're going to look at in this text is very, three very simple points. We're going to look at the gifts first that it talks about and why those were given. We're going to look at the purpose, which is unity. And then we're going to look at the results, which is growth and maturity. And so let's start with the gifts. We're actually not that far removed from uh, 1 Corinthians 12 last year, when uh, actually 12, 13, and 14, when we talked a lot about spiritual gifts, because that was one of Paul's main concerns in the Corinthian church. Uh, this, this text is not specifically focusing on gifts, but I think whenever we talk about the spiritual gifts, it is very useful and very helpful to start with the same two words that Paul starts with in verse 11, he gave every conversation about spiritual gifts would go much better if we started with those two words God gave the gifts gifts spiritual gifts are by definition given to us it's always great to remember that right I didn't choose my gift I can't take credit for my gift I can't be envious of other gifts God gave me the gift that he needed me to have to fulfill my purpose in his church. And so he keeps us humble and, and gives us motivation that if God gave me a gift, I better be using it to serve his church. And so he gave, and then it lists five gifts that he gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now there's been some debate and controversy over this and that why did Paul just pick these 5 is he somehow raising them up as superior to everything else and if you don't have one of these 5 you don't really matter well obviously if you remember from 1 Corinthians there's no superiority in the gifts and there's no inferiority in the gifts they're all given by God and all important you can't say that I don't need you and you can't say that you don't need me and so that's not what he's saying here but but he is calling out five particular gifts, I think the key to understanding why he would do this is what is the connection in these five gifts. Each of these five gifts are, are dominantly the proclamation and the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Paul is emphasizing here to this church when he talks about the design of the church, he's saying, I've given you these gifts to ensure that your church is founded on the Word and rooted in the Gospel and focused on Jesus. We see this in his concerns in verse 14, that that the problem that they were having is rooted in the fact that they were being carried carried about by every wind of doctrine. They were being influenced by false doctrine because they weren't founded in the Word and the apostles' teaching. He goes on to say in verse 13 that why he was writing is so that they would attain the unity of the faith, When you see the in front of faith, it's not talking about belief, it's talking about what is believed, the truth that is believed, which is almost always in the New Testament, the gospel. And he goes on to say, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We see this pattern often through the New Testament. Founded on the word, rooted in the gospel, focused on Jesus. I think that's the connection to the gifts that why he mentions these gifts that God has given to the church. He says in Ephesians, just a couple chapters before, in in chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so we see that pattern, founded on the word, rooted in the gospel, focused on Jesus. I saw a movie not that long ago where, I, where there was a familiar scene uh, that I'd seen in, in many movies before. They're all a little bit different, but they have the same premise. Uh, a leader is standing in front of uh, a group of people, and it, they may be students, they may be players, they may be soldiers, and this leader, he, uh, he takes the, whatever whatever book or manual that they are there to learn, they're there to accomplish some mission, some goal, some purpose, that's going to be very difficult. And he holds up the manual or the book and, and says, this is what they say you need to know to accomplish this mission. Right? I don't know who they are, but it's always they. They say that you need to know what's in this book. And then he dramatically throws it in the trash and says, that's not what we're going to do. And he you know, that's, that's old school thinking. That's old fashioned thinking. That's antiquated thinking. That's out of date Thinking. You know, we're going we're gonna to think outside the box, right? We've got new ideas. We've got new methods. And you know, in the movie, it always works out. And, and there may be circumstances in life where, you, where it's good to, to get out of the book and think outside the box. Uh, the, the problem is, uh, the warning for the church is, is that the modern church has largely done the same with the Word of God, Right? I haven't seen a pastor take the Bible and throw it in the trash, but certainly in practice, in the modern church, the Word has been set aside. That's that's outdated. That's antiquated. That's old-fashioned. And pastors will even brag that this isn't the type of church where I'm going to stand up and say, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Like, who would do that in 2024? Madness. You're never going to grow a church like that. Paul would say that we need some old-fashioned Bible-founded teaching because we live in a world that is constantly changing, right? The moral lines of acceptability change almost by the day anymore, right? And in a constantly subjective and changing word, there is only one objective foundational truth that doesn't change and doesn't expire, and that's what we need to be founded on, the Word of God, right? Right? For those of you going to Bargersville, man, you've got to hold on to that. And, you know, Google how to start a new church, and they're not going to say, Stephen should stand up and say, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. They're going to talk about your cool website and your marketing plan and how to be relevant. And you should mix in politics and social issues and self-help. You've got to hold on to the Word, brother. You've got to be founded in the Word, rooted in the Gospel, focused on Jesus. And and here's why I know that this is what Paul would say as well, because Paul didn't say that God gave the church orators and CEOs and performers and comedians and marketing people. He mentioned these five word-centered gifts. That's how the church is built. That's how the church brings unity. That's how the church is going to grow and mature. And so we got to hold on to that. And then further evidence of that is that he says next, these gifts were given to equip the saints. So I love this word, equipped. It's used several different ways, but in, in the modern daily Greek, it was often used to describe uh, the equipping or the fitting of a ship. When a ship would come back from a long journey, it would come into the harbor, they would, they would unload the cargo, they would clean the ship from top to bottom, and then they would mend it and repair it and strengthen it and they would look for cracks in the mast and and tears in the sails. And then they would refit or outfit the ship, resupply the ship to send it back out on its journey because that's what its purpose was, right? I love that picture in the context of the church that we come together, right, to refit us for the journey of the week ahead of us, that we come in, we get mended and repaired and restored and outfitted with everything that we're going to need in our journey this week. I I have to admit that I thought about if the church was a ship, what kind of ship would it be? Um, Well, with all the battle uh, terminology in the New Testament, maybe it's a warship. Uh, Maybe it's a fishing ship that we're going out with the gospel to be fishers of men. I I think the modern church uh, thinks it's a cruise ship. Right? Where we come... Relax. we get entertained, we get fed. We're just cruising through our best life now, right? And that's, is that the picture of the New Testament? Paul's dealing with the Ephesian church. He is trying to fit this ship for the journey, and the storm that's coming is persecution. And he's saying, man, if, if, if you are not founded on the word rooted in the gospel, focused on Jesus, right, you're going to fall apart, not because of the pressures from without, you're going to fall apart from within, and so he says, I gave, God gave these gifts to equip the saints, fit the ship, and then he goes on to say, for the work of the ministry. Ships were not intended to sit in the harbor. They're intended to, to, to go out on the journey, to do the work they were made to do, to, to get to the destination they were sent to reach. The work of the ministry. The word ministry there—that's not gonna talking about people in full-time ministry. The word ministry there is simply the word that we get the word deacon from. It's the word service. We are all given gifts for the work of service to serve each other. The idea here is to share the load. And he's also, I think, telling the people that do have those five gifts at the top: you're not intended. These aren't given to you to lord over people. These are given to you to serve people. And so we see this beautiful picture. God gives these gifts, word-centered gifts, to equip and fit the ship of the saints for the work of ministry, ultimately for the building up of the body of Christ, which takes us to unity. And before we talk about unity, I I, I think there's one thing that we need to make sure that we're doing. We're talking about the church at large, but we're just a group of people, right? And so each and every one of us needs to ask these same questions that we ask of our church. Is my life founded on the Word? Is this, how, is this how I would describe my life this week? Founded on the Word, rooted in the Gospel, focused on Jesus. Is that what my home looks like? Is that what I strive to teach my children? Is that the attitude that I bring into this congregation? Each and every one of us needs to uh, make these things personal because we bring these things into the church with us as individuals in this congregation. And so the purpose of these things is unity. And we see this beautiful picture here. As I thought about this week, and actually the older I get, there's something that I contemplate often. So I love, uh, Polly and I love to travel around the country, and and we're not really drawn, and many of you do as well, and we're not really drawn to the big cities. We like to go out, and experience what we would call the wonders of God's creation. And our country is full of them, right? I mean, you got mountains, and you've got canyons, and you've got forests, and you've got oceans, and you've got lakes, and you've got wildlife. All these things which are just awe-inspiring, creator-affirming things. That, that we will spend lots of time and money and energy to, to travel all over the country and, and even the world to see, right? This is, this is what a lot of us like to do. And... Um, The older I get, I wonder if I'm missing the forest for the trees sometimes. Because as I get older, what I believe is the most awe-inspiring, God-affirming wonder of all creation is that thing that I see in the mirror every morning, the human body. Man, this is something that we take for granted every single second of every single day. Can we think just for a moment of what is happening right here, right now, just in just in me, right? My my body is is making hundreds of adjustments every minute to keep me balanced and to keep me moving. And, and you know I'm powered up here because I'm moving, I'm animated, I'm making noise, hopefully words. Yeah, but but you don't see a that's that, you don't see a power cord, you don't see a battery pack. I'm just, a, I'm just meat and bones, and, and, and yet I, I'm alive, and, and I, I have this thing, this control center up here that we call a brain that, let's face it, folks, it's just a piece of meat. That's all it is. It's a piece of meat that is controlling everything that I'm doing without me even thinking about it instantaneously. There are thousands of things going on in my body right now that my brain is controlling and that I have, they're completely involuntary. And think about what's happening right here. Right now, uh, this meat, piece of meat, meat computer, if you will, that is protected by the hardest part of my body. No comments, Polly. Uh, and this, this meat computer has a consciousness that is forming ideas that is, for and, and taking those down into sentences, and then taking those down into words, and then taking those down into the smallest variations of sounds. And then, and I wrote this down because I know I'd mess it up. That's the, in the spree- speech production area. It then activates the muscles in my, you know, through electrical signals, through the 45 miles of nerves in my body, activates the muscles of my face and my mouth and my tongue and my lips to shape these air pressure variations, what we call sound waves, that then go out into the ether and bounce off the walls and enter the, the outer ear of, of your ears, travel through the ear canal, the eardrum vibrates in response to these air pressure variations, and then, and then the the three small bones in the middle ear take those and transmit those vibrations to the cochlea that has filled with fluid and has hair cells that convert the mechanical vibrations into electrical signals that, that hit the auditory nerve. That then, and then your brain reassembles everything I just said in a microsecond. Did you all, did you all understand what I just said? Isn't that a miracle? Uh, I mean, science can talk about what that is, but science cannot explain how it happened and where it came from and why. When I talk to agnostics or atheists, and I've had my fair share of conversations, I've learned not to point them to the wonders of the universe. Even though the heavens declare the glory of God, the human body screams it. How can we even have this conversation? The body is the most awe-inspiring, creator-affirming wonder of them all. And I say all that to say this. It should not be lost on us that the church is compared to the body. There is a wonder and a mystery of how the church works, how a healthy, growing, united church works together. It is a beautiful thing to watch, and yet it is almost impossible uh, to explain in human terms. We should be honored that we are part of the body that God has put together. God has created and designed this body, and we are a part of it. And And he says everything that he said so far is for the building up of the body of Christ, and then he takes this body analogy further and says that, well, we all know that the head controls the body. And by the way, the head is Christ. Into him who is the head. We are to grow into him who is the head, into Christ. And if the body gets disconnected from the head, the body dies, right? We've seen that happen in churches all over the place, right? And not only when the body gets disconnected, when, when, the, when the connection between the head and the body gets distorted or weakened, the body suffers, right? You know, a lot of us can relate to that, right? Some of you are dealing with that right now. The connection between your brain and your fingers is distorted or weakened. And what you used to be able to do without thinking, now you have to think about it to make your fingers work the way you want. There's a distortion there. There's a weakness there. You know there's something wrong there. There's a disconnection from the head. The church must stay connected to the head. Christ must be preeminent. We must be focused on the word, rooted in the gospel, focused on Jesus, founded in the word, focused on Jesus. What what weakens the connection to the head? Uh, It could be one of a hundred things. A few that I could say. Unrepentant sin in the church, or sin that is not dealt with in the church, or unforgiveness in the church. Or selfishness in the church, having an earthly, temporal mindset in the church, being distracted by non essential things in the church, all weaken the connection to the head and the body suffers. If you want an example of this, nation worldwide, look at what happened a few years ago during the pandemic. Many churches did not survive. Many churches split. Many churches have never recovered. And I don't know every circumstance of, of, of those, but I've heard enough to know that in most of those cases, the church got disconnected from the head and was more concerned about politics and about mandates and about vaccines and about masks. And they got so distracted by that that they got disconnected from the head and the, church, the body suffered and the church split. It doesn't take much to distract us, right? And, and by the grace of God, uh, God was gracious to us during that, wasn't he? I don't know that we can explain it. We are, we are a bunch of very flawed people led by a bunch of very flawed elders. And yet God was gracious in that as we fought to stay founded in the word, all of us and rooted in the gospel, and focused on Jesus. God was gracious, and not only did we survive the pandemic, we thrived coming out of that, and we're growing and healthy. Praise the Lord. Which really, as Toby said, was part of our motivation is to, to start another church. Because we want, God has been gracious to us. He wants We want him to do the same thing in Bargersville. They need a church there. We've got to stay connected to the head and let nothing distract us. And then in verse 16, he, he, he says, from whom, from the head, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together. This is a beautiful picture of unity, and he's starting to use some physiological uh, terms that we won't get into, but the picture here, the joined and held together, is a picture of, of knitting or sewing something together to make it one or to make it strong. And he uses this uh, similar language in Colossians 2 when he says this. Not holding, he, he actually is warning them about not holding fast to the head because from the head, the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See the picture of the body there, the joints and the ligaments? And we don't know what all Paul understood, but under the power of the Holy Spirit, he's doing a pretty good job of describing how the body fits together and is strengthened and unified. And that all comes through our connection to the head. If we are all connected to the same head, we are going to be unified as a body and strengthened as a body, which will lead to growth and maturity. And then he finishes with this statement, which is kind of a, two statements that are kind of a play on words, by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly. And we saw this back in, in 1 Corinthians 12, where you had, kind of have this all language and you have this each language, Right? All of us are in this together and have a responsibility to the body, to each other, but each of us has a particular role to play. God has put you in this body for a specific purpose. He has gifted you in a specific way to serve this congregation. All of us, we're in this together, but each of us has our own part to play. And so the, the question for us as individuals then is, am I protecting the unity of this body? Am I, am I loving and caring for this body? Am I using my gifts to serve this body? Am I gracious and forgiving with others in this body? Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not speaking to specific issues here because I think that, uh, that our church has, has um, shown great maturity and and uh, being gracious and forgiving with each other, but man, it is always a danger. And even in great things, like sending out uh, some of our folks to start a new church, right? the danger is that Satan will somehow use that to cause, this has happened before, where Satan will use that to cause some sort of division and dissension uh, if we get distracted by the goal and by being connected to the head. And so that, that's, that's something that each and every one of us uh, needs to take personally, because that's what we bring into the body every time we come through those doors. Uh, finally, uh, we look at the results, which is maturity. And uh, if the church, so, so look, at, look at where we started, right? God has gifted uh, the church with these word-centered gifts to equip and fit the ship for the work of service and ministry to build up the body of Christ, connected to the head, each and every one of us, all of us, each of us, right? Protecting the unity of the church and serving and loving and caring for each other. And that will bring maturity and growth. I didn't say that that can bring or should bring or could bring. Paul's very clear, it will bring growth and maturity. If a a church... Or even an individual is not growing and maturing in the faith, something's wrong. Because growth will come, and back to Colossians, a growth that comes from God will come if the design, God's design for the church is followed. I saw a video on social media a couple weeks ago of a a mother uh, videoing her son uh, trying to do some uh, very basic things like sound out the alphabet. And um, and write his name on a piece of paper, and uh, and he he didn't get it all, but he you know he, she applauded him every every time he did get something right. She celebrated with him and his efforts, and same with the writing. He didn't do it great, but uh, she celebrated his effort, and uh, that's something that all of us parents have been through, or maybe are going through now, right? A pretty normal uh, stage of our of raising our children. But what was different about this that I didn't tell you up front is that. Uh, this one that was doing four-year-old tasks was nearly 40 years old, and by any account, his mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, uh, he was operating at about a four-year-old level. And when I say that, or if you saw that, instinctively you would, your brain would say, "I wonder what happened, right? I wonder what happened." That's not how it's supposed to work, right? That's not how God designed our bodies to work, right? You grow, when, you, when you're four years old, you do four-year-old stuff, and then you do eight-year-old stuff, and then you do high school stuff, and then you do adult stuff. We're supposed to grow in each of those areas, physically, mentally, socially, emotionally. And when somebody doesn't, either whether it's in our family or somebody we know, know or cared about, we're alarmed by that. Then we should be. Because if there's not growing and maturing, something is wrong. And Paul is saying to this church, you're not growing. You should be mature, you should be adults, but you're still toddlers. He says in verse 14, his concern for them is that they be no longer children. That, that word is there is a young child, what we would call a toddler. And Paul sees the lack of growth and is and he's alarmed, right? I wonder as parents, if we are as alarmed about spiritual immaturity in our children as we are of the other four, right? I mean, what does it profit my sons if they grow in the other four and become productive members of society and do you know, great things and are successful and all that if they lose their own soul, right? The spiritual growth is the one that should matter the most to us. And it should shade every, con- every decision we make about our children because we know that God has designed us to grow. And Paul is saying to this church, you're not growing, something's wrong. You're still children. You're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried, a, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. They were not founded on the word. And so they fell for anything that anybody would say. And they were believing in false teaching. This is not the only place where Paul has said this. Back in just a chapter previous in Ephesians 3, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people or adults, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Galatians 4, he says, in the same way also, we, When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's, what he's saying there is, you say you're Christians, but you're, you're still acting like the world. Hebrews 5, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, a toddler. If you don't know, if you aren't founded in the word, you're going to be spiritually immature, childish. And then these famous words from 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And, And that made me think, Paul is comparing them to spiritual toddlers. Well, what do toddlers look like? What is typical toddler behavior? And maybe you are in the middle of the terrible twos or the traumatic threes or the the frightening fours or the formidable fives or the scary sixes, I can go on. Um, And it isn't always this way, Uh, but when I was a child, and I'm sure, I'm confident these things were true of me as a toddler, it was not abnormal. Uh, For a toddler to be selfish, to be self-centered, to be easily distracted, to be focused on the now, which means ruled by circumstances and fickle, resist authority, they are irresponsible and blame others, they seek attention, they lack empathy. Not always, praise the Lord, right? But this is typical toddler behavior. They tend to be unstable, they're ignorant, they just don't know things yet, they haven't learned things yet. Uh, They're deceptive, they're dishonest, they're fearful, and yet at the same time do things that are unsafe. They are weak and helpless and easily swayed and impulsive and lack self-control and can be volatile and have a temper and easily frustrated and can't handle anything off schedule. Difficulty, stress, unexpected things. This is is childish behavior. Paul is saying you're spiritual toddlers. All right, now be honest. Uh, How many of you see yourself in this list? How many of you see yourself very well represented in this list? How many of you did some of these things this morning all the way to church? <laughs> we are still growing, right? But the pattern of our lives should be growing more and more, right? And moving on to more mature things. If you're still dealing with the same sins... That you've dealt with year after year, if not decade after decade. Paul would say, It's time to grow up. It's time to do something different. I mean, are you really gonna take that sin for the next however many lives you live to your grave and never get serious about doing something different and finding somebody who loves you and cares about you to hold you accountable or putting yourself under biblical counseling? It's time to grow up, church. We can't be children any longer. And he says that in verse 15. We are to grow up. And he describes that in several different ways. You are to grow up in every way. Uh, If you don't like that childish list, focus on the, the fruit of the spirit list. That's a great way to find areas to mature. We are to grow up to mature manhood. Adults, not children. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, focused on Christ Right, as, I, as I seek to be more and more like him. And all of this then, in verse 16, he says, it makes the body grow. There will be growth if we follow God's design, individually and corporately. A growth that is from God, from Colossians 2. And he says this final statement, which I love at the end here. He says it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Which, again, physiologically is kind of what happens in the body. The body regenerates itself every so often, right? But he says it builds itself up in love. I, th- I think we could say it this way, that though the head is the control center of the body and controls everything, and we've got to stay connected to the head, love is the lifeblood of the body our love for our creator, our love for our savior, our love for each other, our love for the lost, our love for our enemies even. Love is the lifeblood of the church as we stay connected to the head. Now we've used this phrase at the bottom, founded on the word rooted in the gospel, focused on Jesus. You might wonder, what does that look like? As we finish here, Um, Let me give a couple examples of what that might look like. Uh, The first being if you're studying the Word, and the second being something more in everyday life. If you're studying the Word, what does this pattern look like? Let's take Genesis 1 as an example. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was covering the face of the deep, and the Spirit was moving across the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there is light. And he said, let there be life, and there is life. That's basically Genesis 1. Well, if I'm founded on the Word, I'm going to say, God is my creator. And, and that, that's, that means everything. And he has authority. And he has, I am accountable to him. And that's going to change the, my worldview. And it's going to change the way I see the events of the world and the people of the world. Because God is my creator. But you don't have to look too hard to see the roots of the gospel in Genesis 1, right? Because what God did to the world, he did to me. Out of darkness, he said, let there be light. And I saw the, the truth of the gospel. From my deadness, he said, let there be life. He brought me to life so I could respond in faith to the gospel. Right? The roots of the gospel are in Genesis 1, and then that focuses me then on Jesus, the one who made it all possible. All right? You see that pattern? Founded in the word, rooted in the gospel, focused on Jesus. And listen, if you've been coming to Gray Road at all, you, you know this is the pattern we follow every Sunday, whether we're in Genesis or jeremiah or jonah or john or jude we end up at jesus because this is the pattern of scriptures there's a foundation that's rooted in the gospel that points to jesus so what about everyday life situations? so let's say you are struggling with uh in my sunday school class is going to hate me because we've been talking about this uh, and it's very convicting but uh what if you're struggling with forgiveness Or somebody you're counseling somebody who's struggling with forgiveness. Well, founded on the Word, we look at what the Scriptures say about forgiveness. It's not optional, right? It's something that we are required to do. And we see the the power of forgiveness and the consequences of unforgiveness. But the root of that, the gospel root of that, is I'm to forgive as I have been forgiven. I'm to forgive as God has forgiven me through Jesus. I have no option but to forgive because I have been forgiven... And if I don't forgive, I'm placing myself above God who has forgiven me. And then that points me to Jesus, right? Through whom my forgiveness is possible and who gave the ultimate example of forgiveness when he even forgave the, the men who nailed him to the cross. You See the pattern. Start with the word, roots of the gospel, focus on Jesus. Uh, let me close with this thought. Uh, one of my uh, favorite sports, my favorite sports event Uh, in US history, which which becomes my favorite sports movie, is the story of the 1980 US hockey team. And um, I love that story for many reasons. I love the geopolitical angles behind it all. And and yet the most interesting part of that story, uh, now that group of college kids ended up beating the professional Soviet team and won the gold medal. And the interesting part of the story is how the team came together. And you had the coach Herb Brooks, who was a successful college coach. He knew all the players. And so he crafted a team uh, together uh, that, that had a mix of players from all over the country. And college hockey is very much rivalry driven, intense rivalry, hated rivalry driven. And it's very territorial. So you had a bunch of Boston guys with a bunch of uh, Minnesota guys and Michigan guys, and they all hated each other. And he brings them all together on the same team. And predictably, at the beginning, it's pretty tough. And, uh, you know, they're always fighting with each other. They're, they see themselves as, as enemies. And it shows up on the ice. They don't play well. They don't play together. And uh, Brooks decides that he needs a unifying force to bring his team together. And he decided that unifying force was going to be their hatred for him. And so he... He, just, he, he said that uh, he intentionally made things as hard as humanly possible. He did things to them that should be illegal. And he, he made them hate him to the point that, because they had to come together to survive the six month process to even get to the Olympics, much less play in it. And it worked. Their hatred for him unified them and they actually came together and learned that they were a lot alike and, and they, they, they had a camaraderie. And they actually became very good, close friends even to this day. And it showed up on the ice. They started playing together. There was a chemistry there that made them much better than the sum of their parts. On paper, they had no business winning a gold medal. But all of that, that unity brought a maturity and a growth that uh, allowed them to accomplish their purpose. right? And, and they asked uh, Coach Brooks, uh, well, how did you put that team together? He said, well, I, I wasn't looking for the best players. I was looking for the right ones. And he said, I specifically designed this team with the right sets of skills and uh, roles and, and temperaments and personalities that I knew could come together and compete. And, and, I, and I thought if, if a coach can do that, tie all that work to design a hockey team, how much care and design and effort do you think that our creator, our all-knowing sovereign creator put into designing the church, the body, the bride for the bridegroom, his son. God has intentionally designed the church to be unified, not by hatred, but unified by our love for for God and for Christ and for each other. We grow and we mature and we accomplish things that we could never do individually. And that is God's design for the church he has gifted the church for the purpose of unity, resulting in maturity, as we are founded on the word, rooted in the gospel, and focused on Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that and honored that we can even be in your body. We don't deserve it, and we can't take credit for it, and I, I pray that you would show each and every one of us where we fit in this body, how we can serve this body, how we can love this body every time we come through those doors and during the week. I thank you for your blessing on this congregation, your grace upon us uh, to keep us unified and growing. I pray that we would not relax or be distracted, but that you would continue to grow us and show us more and more of Jesus and how we can be more like him. I pray that we would be challenged and encouraged and changed by these things and it would make a difference as we, as we take our ship into our, the journey of our week that we would have everything that we need to accomplish what you have uh, for your glory. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.